Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Sarah Haider. Born in Pakistan, Sarah spent her early youth as a practicing Muslim in the United States, leaving religion in her late teens. Since 2013, she has advocated for the acceptance of religious dissent and is the current executive director of ex-Muslims of North America. Sarah is a former board member of the Reason Rally Coalition and a co-founder and current board member of the Rights and Religious Forum. In addition to free thought, Sarah is particularly passionate about civil liberties and women's rights. She also writes on Substack. Hold that thought. I welcome Sarah Heider to Savage Minds. All the readings I have done in, over the past 23 months have left me with a huge question mark as to how Fauci was given this mitre to hold in the US, how Sage was given a mitre in the UK and so forth and so on. And we're getting information in piecemeal format such that the Omicron, if you recall two months ago, it was the worst thing ever. Now, publications are saying it's not that dangerous, it's highly transmissible, but it's less deadly. Okay, great, now we've got that piece of information, but what do we do for the last 60 days that they've been spinning the death plague all over? And I tell you, I have serious issues with the media now, because mm. major media, because we're all beholden to it, even minor media. What I do is I'm using CNN to footnote what when CNN cannot toe the line on masks from one month to the next, right? Or when Facebook and Twitter are deleting users who post peer-reviewed studies that show, like the Daymask study, that show that masks are not actually helping in virus mitigation. So you know what I mean, Sarah? This is a really <laughs> serious issue as to the role of media, the efficacy of media, and how media, big tech, big business, etc., have gotten together to sort of snowball us. And if we dare tweet something wrong, then goodbye Twitter account, right? Right, right. I mean, it's so, I, on, the, on the one hand, you know, it, to where I can say that, well, uh, let me, let me give, let me stop and, and, uh, take into account the fact that obviously this is an ongoing um, evolving situation. We know something for a fact, quote unquote, and on, you know, in, in the one, one day and then, and then on the other day we learn something new and that's fine. And that's, that's how science happens. And we expect that our public officials, um, you know, that they, that they are doing the best that they can, or we hope that they're doing the best they can. It's, it's what you mentioned, um, just towards the end there, which is that that it's com com that combined with this strange uh, campaign against you know quote unquote disinformation that just seems to be um, extremely foolish at a time when when we really don't know what you know uh, what the truth might be and that the, when the situation is evolving and we've know we've we've seen that right from the beginning of of the virus um, that we thought we knew what this was and then and then we didn't and then we thought what we knew what we thought we knew again and then we didn't and you know we're learning so it makes no sense that in a in an environment like this that that um, tech companies are are working together with um, with uh, these these public health organizations um, to stamp out quote unquote misinformation I just think um, I think it's so foolish and I'm concerned about, about what it means. Um, and I also think that it, it, it will lead to, and it already has led to greater distrust among the public 
um, when it comes to to how we feel about our public health uh, organizations and and how willing we are to to listen to them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a it's an evolving, scary situation. And there's a lot of uh, paradoxical circumstances within irony as well when you start to take into account that prior to this pandemic we were living in times a lot of my work prior to 2020 revolved around the gender identity movement where women and men were getting knocks on their door all throughout the uk by the police because they tweeted that sex is immutable and i find it quite paradoxical because the same agencies and health authorities and uh, councils that are now arguing, believe the science, get vaccinated, all this stuff. But they're the same groups of people who were saying that we were like Nemo, that we could change sex naturally and magically. And science was sort of on the back, back, back burner and still is with the gender identity movement. And then the way I came to know about you, Sarah, was through your work as being an ex-Muslim. And I was curious about what this meant, of course, because I grew up in a family. My father's Indian, he's Gujarati, Hindi uh, Bhutahu. <laughs> and my, uh, my learning Hindi came because my family largely are, <laughs> gosh, they hear this, they might kill me, but uh, they're large, a lot of them are Modi supporters. And a lot of my family was horrified by the riots in Gujarat. Some hold very anti-Muslim sentiment. I think I can say that honestly without hurting feelings there. And we've had debates. Uh, I've had arguments with one of my uncles over this. And then I was in Europe during 9-11, went back to teach at NYU in 2002. And I was alarmed by the anti-Muslim sentiment that I saw in all of all places, New York City, and of all places amongst some of my dearest friends. It was shocking to me. I was working on a project, Sarah, on Avenue H in Coney Island Avenue, where a large group of men, largely Muslim men, were disappeared by the US government. And it's a project that's been followed by the ACLU, where over 14,000 men with the special registration, if you recall, were disappeared either in reality and or bureaucratically put on night planes back to Egypt, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And this was a reality in 2002, three, four. But then I saw somehow things shift as well, where it was, there was a, a, a wokery that emerged, not because of the disappeared of the Muslims in America, not necessarily because of some kind of guilt by neoliberals in the US about how we reacted to 9-11, but all of this, as you saw with the, um, the incident with the Palestinian uh, American activist in Palestine, I forgot her name, Rachel Corey. It was all on the heels of that, where I began to see some kind of pushback from Jewish Americans and leftist Americans more verbally against the state of Israel. And I began to see that there was a political quote unquote awakening that was taking form in terms of a rhetoric that I found a bit far stretched and not enough couched in fact, if you catch me. And that's sort of where I'm coming from because I am a leftist and I saw 
Islamophobia. At the same time, I saw a lot of doubling back and sort of kind of uh, a type of convenience marker of self-empowerment of the individual through political markers of the international scene, if you catch what I'm saying. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I, um, you know, I was a Muslim, so I can't, you know, I, 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 I like to bring this up because people, you know, when I'm discussing this issue, they conveniently forget that, that I remember what it was like to be a Muslim in post 9-11 America. I remember um, what it felt like, you know, um, and, and sometimes that, that feeling is more important than, than maybe the reality of what, of, uh, of what persecution might be because you, you feel besieged, um, you feel um, concerned about your, your friends and family. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember what that was like, um, but that is, you know, those are, those issues are real, but none of them take away from the fact that the, the, the issues with the religion are also very real and impact those very same Muslims. Um, and if, if anything, impact a much larger group of people because you have the entire Muslim world. Um, it's a far larger group of people that is that is impacted by the problems within the religion, um, as opposed to the relatively small group of people that is in the Western world that may be subject to to persecution. And although it doesn't it doesn't really make sense to to compare uh, one hardship with another. Um, I bring it up only because people tell me to shut up because of it. <laughs> you know, people tell me that this is not the time for you to be talking about what's going on within the faith because uh, look at all that 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 Muslims are are suffering in the in the United States and and um, and the Western world um, broadly. And then I say, well, I'm not denying that 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 exists. Um, but that is not a, that's not sufficient reason for me to stop talking about you know the issues within the faith. And if anything, if we want to just compare what is the biggest bigger harm, I think it, without a doubt, uh, the bigger harm is is uh, a religious um, ideology that forestalls all kinds of progress. I mean, and and truly all kinds of progress, from scientific progress to you know uh, to 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 approaching a you know, more egalitarian society in terms of gender, to accepting people of different you know sexual orientations, um, to to just expanding our horizons in terms of you know art and and. Um, uh, and then that sort of thing. I mean, there's, there's, it, these societies are um, just hindered from, from expanding in this way and, and becoming a part of the modern world in, in every sense. And a lot of that can be, you know, pulled back to um, the religious ideology uh, that, that makes it a crime uh, that may, to, to go against the religion and, and, you know, and then we see the impact of that. Indeed, and and there's been a lot of debate within the Arab Islamic world about democratic rights and religion. I've done a lot of work in the Maghreb, so between Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, since the independence from France, there have been many scholars who have come forward to critique, let's say, the royal family of Morocco, or even Bourguiba's hold on power in Tunisia. And keep in mind that Bourguiba was and is considered one of the most pro-feminist leaders in the Arab world in 
decades, he, for instance, made laws to make it illegal for tragueurs, who are these men who whistle and taunt girls and women outside of schools by a certain number of meters. I believe it was 100 meters. And he set up a social and political system at the time in Tunisia, which many women, many feminists said was the most advanced. That was then. He got out of power. We saw what happened with Ben Ali. Many journalists at the time of Ben Ali said they preferred working in Morocco under the reign of Mohammed VI because they had no freedom. So all of what we think in the West that monarchies are somehow more repressive than elected presidents was completely inverted. And then go to Algeria and what happened there with the feasts and their civil war, now the period which seems to be bringing the most interesting results, I'd say, of the region in terms of democratic expression to what's happened then in Egypt, Iran, and so forth. And we're left with so many cultural and political differences that it becomes almost impossible to speak about Islam or Arabo-Islamic culture as a group. There is no homogeneous group out there, really. At the same time, as a Pakistani American, you had your experiences. You were born in Pakistan, and then you were raised in Texas. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I'm just curious what your thoughts are in terms of how you see yourself, obviously, as a Pakistani American, but at the same time, is it so possible that we can generalize about the way in which Islam oppresses or liberates the subject, depending on what side of that debate you're on? Well, I mean, it is, a, it's obviously a very complicated, um, you know, uh, topic. And I, I, I understand, um, I mean, the, the, what you said, both sides of that, that topic or wherever you happen to be on. I mean, I, I understand um, where that feeling is coming from, um, the resistance to, to, to make any kind of claim whatsoever, because it is um, in some of it, it must be right. Like if you're if you're making a generalization uh, over such a broad group of people, it is going to be necessarily not true for a large, um, you know, percentage of them. Um, but it is only, um, you know, I, I think that so long as we are careful about um, how we how we speak about this issue. I think that we must be able to make some uh, broad claims about what the uh, the effect of the religion might be, um, and it's interesting to me because we don't, it, you know, in other cases uh, we don't really resist um, making a claim such as okay, the, in 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 a varied environment, uh, this specific variable, whether that be culture. Um, a certain, you know, uh, political history, let's say like a history of, of having been colonized or a history of colonialism. Like we wouldn't, we, you know, when we're analyzing sort of just these um, broad patterns, we don't say that we, we simply cannot know what uh, the, the ex what, what a country might have um, experienced um, having been colonized, like we simply cannot gather this data because it's just, it's a, it's a generalization. I mean, if, if we think in those terms and really we can't say anything about anything, right? Like we can't say, 
that democracies tend to be like this and monarchies tend to be like that because technically it's always, always um, a generalization and, and necessarily not true for, for some percentage of the population. But um, I think there are ways uh, to, to analyze the effect of religion um, as, as clearly as we can. And of course, it's not perfectly clear because we're talking about human societies um, that have you know, a thousand different pulls and pushes in, in different directions. And in the case of the Muslim world, um, a, a huge variety of cultural backgrounds um, upon which this religion is, is um, uh, you know, variously enforced or, or just simply um, uh, absorbed into the population. Um, so, you know, South Asian culture, Indian culture is very different than, than Arab culture, which is very different than, you know, Turkish, uh, uh, you know, uh, culture and, and, and heritage and even political history. Um, but that doesn't mean that we, 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 we can't find patterns. And in fact, I think that, that, that some patterns are easier, are pretty, pretty clear and to deny that they exist is in itself extremely problematic. Um, one pattern that I like to point out is um, the, the, the consistent resistance to gender equality in Muslim majority countries, um, and particularly in countries that have, um, uh, you know, that, that, that Aren't, aren't necessarily secular, that, that have um, a, a level of religious, um, you know, you can call it the theocratic, but, but it isn't necessarily that way, but just religious influence on politics, um, especially in domestic affairs. And when, whenever you see that, you see that women are not uh, equal in the law um, with men. Right. And it's, it, that's an easy pattern to see. And you can you can see it over and over again. And you can see that despite differences in culture, despite different experiences with colonialism and, and other forms of you know, political organization, despite whether you know, they happen to be uh, you know, more authoritarian in their political organization today or whether they have uh, absorbed democratic elements, you always see this. Right. So and then then we can go back and say, why might that be? And I think it's very clear that, you know, there are aspects of the religion that, you know, and what I, I've, I've seen this, um, uh, read, I read this somewhere, I forget, I forget who said this, but um, the scholar of, of Islam uh, who looked into specifically domestic violence um, uh, in the religion and, and whether or not it, it approved of it or not, um, she, she, she said that Islam is necessarily a gendered religion. And I agree with her um, in the sense that to be a good Muslim, Muslim, if you are a man, there's, there's certain, certain ways you have to move about in the world to be a good Muslim. And if you're a woman, you know, there are different duties and obligations um, that, that, that you must, um, you know, take upon yourself um, in order to reach heaven. And even heaven looks different <laughs> for men and for women. Um, so this is, you know, this is a gendered religion. Of course, it will have an effect on the population that you know either believes in it or is um, forced uh, to to um, abide by its its restrictions. Well, Fatima Mernisi looks at this, in fact, in much of her work, and she's gone through many of the hadith that specifically target women or sexist symbolism of women, and she looks at the hadith by Abu Bakr, one of the Prophet's companions, who was a renowned wife beater, and she questions 
the which is, what is called the isnad in Arabic, the chain of veritability of the hadith itself. And as you probably know, Islam is very scientific, quote unquote, in how it these hadith are recorded and verified. Yet she says, despite all of these verifications, it wasn't really taken into account that Abu Bakr was a renowned wife beater. So why is anything that he says being taken worth more than a grain of salt? That's part of the thesis of one of her books on this very subject. What has impressed me over the past decade is, especially in, in groups, I am in a lot of groups over women's rights, is when any woman critiques Islam and that woman happens to be not Muslim or happens to be white, she will be beaten down by the wrath of words of other women calling her a racist without listening to what she is saying. And this has come about in the age of wokery, where now you can only speak if you have any of these tick box characteristics, such as, are you a sexual minority? Are you a woman? Are you a person of color, et cetera, et cetera. Where I think that we ought to be tabling the debate upon facts rather than sentiment, rather than who you are or identify as. And this is a problem. I'm sure you've had this problem and you are coming from a background of being raised as a Muslim. And I read that your father also stepped away from the religion. So you might even be seen by some as some kind of contagion, you, you see, where you could be framed as someone who's very toxic to the religion, toxic to stability in the way that in Islam, the word fitna was used to refer to the prophet's last wife, Aisha, when she went into battle, that last ba that battle of hers was called fitna rather than the battle of Aisha. It was also called the battle of the camel where she went up against the, the caliphate to decide. Well, basically it was a split between Sunniism and Shiitism. Now, I find this all very fascinating because we see from the very beginning of the writings of the history of Islam, that women were written out of the history or written to minimize their their participation in that history, even though their participation in that history to include the Prophet Muhammad's life was very important, right? I mean, his first wife. I mean, and so Fatima Murnisi's work, I'm a big fan of her work because she starts to examine the role of his wives in one of her other books, looking at how this was a man who was formed by women, not the inverse, right? And uh, it's interesting that today, the way that Islam is interpreted, not just within the religion, but outside is, well, many in the West, and I think your sentiments about this, from what I have read of yours, is that it's a, a very troubling religion in terms of gender disparity. What women's rights are not acceded, whereas men are given all the rights. On the other hand, of course, during the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries, when in 13th centuries, when Europe was at war with itself, you had this renaissance happening in North Africa and Grenada, where women were building mosques, right? So in a way, I look at some of the disempowerment of women, not as necessarily part and parcel only of, let's say, the religion itself, but also of the way that time and invariably throughout all cultures treats women. 
um, I'm not sure if you're aware that in India, there's a lot of Hindu women who convert to Islam because they actually see that religion as more empowering for them than their own. And why is that? Well, Islam at least concedes women a, a certain right of inheritance, right? Or you skip over to Lebanon, where I know men who have converted from Sunniism to Shiitism because their daughters will get more of an inheritance, right? So there's all of these technical tissues underneath the surface that play a part in how people see their own role within this religion. Or I read, maybe you can correct me, but I read about two years ago that there was a conference in Tunisia where scholars were rethinking to reinterpret the religion through perhaps a new set of texts. But I don't know what happened with that because lockdown. No, I, I didn't hear about that. Well, there's so I mean, there've always been attempts to reinterpret the religion um, to be something um, more progressive, uh, more egalitarian, um, more fair to women. Um, and you know, I, I I obviously on the side of those, like I, I I support people who are who are trying to make who are trying to find gender equality through the faith. Um, and I see the usefulness of that in that there are some Muslims who will only accept um, gender equality if they can be convinced that the religion, in fact, um, you know, the true authentic practice is, uh, is, is more egalitarian um, and that they will not listen to secular arguments. So that, that, might, be, that might be true. Um, so I, I, I you know, hesitate to ever say, um, you know, I feel 100% certain that, that the only way to, to gender equality is through, through this, this secular, um, uh, uh, you know, ideological like persuasion tactics. Um, but uh, having said that, um, I am frustrated with the require with first um, that I have to 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 say that you know um, that in in the past there are some there are some uh, cultures that have existed in the past or there are even some cultures today as you mentioned um, where women are treated in fact a little bit worse and so Islam is Islam is uh, better than them and therefore you know it doesn't have to be this misogynist religion um, or uh, you know bringing up Muhammad's wives I mean as you brought up Khadija I think Khadija is a very interesting example in that she was the most she was Muhammad's first wife she was the most um, empowered of, of of his wives the you know she was a businesswoman um, she was a, a powerful person she employed Muhammad um, she was older than him, um, and uh, uh, it, you know she was definitely somebody who who had a huge influence on him. He didn't take any other wives until she died. Um, so this is an, an incredible woman, but this is also a woman that existed and operated prior to Islam, right? Islam didn't Islam didn't exist as a religion until until after they were married, she was already this powerful person. And, and indeed, there are, are so many ways in which 
you know, prior to the founding of Islam, uh, prior to the full uh, revelation coming out, women were, were no longer had the kinds of freedoms to be the kind of woman Khadija was, you know, to have the kind of autonomy she had, you know, arguably, uh, you know, Muhammad's uh, future wives didn't have that same autonomy. Many of the criticisms one could make from 632 onward could be made about many religions at the time. My own grandmother, she was married when she was 12 years old, I believe, 12 or 13. And this was allowed in the 20th century in India. Mm -hmm. So one must wonder to what degree we are perhaps extrapolating by historical commonalities that were consistent with within all religions and cultures, or most religions and cultures, let's say, mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, your direct criticism of Islam comes from your own experiences and your own readings of the texts. So maybe we can step there for a moment to see what your specific disagreements are, because you, you mentioned the word misogyny before, and that's a word that I've heard from many women and men in referring to Islam. What are some of the finer points of a misogyny for you within that religion? So let me um, let backtrack a little bit. I think that what you brought up is um, just to clarify, you know, to your audience, um, it's I am not, um, and you know, nor have I ever uh, felt that Islam is the the sole or unique, you know, oppressor of of women. Or this is this is a this is an ideology that is, uh, you know. Uh, that is misogynist as and and and, and uh, without which there would be no misogyny in that part of the world. I don't believe that, right? Of course, that's not true. And I think what you pointed out about you know there are certain certain um, sort of historical there's historical evolution um, when it comes to women's rights that has been kind of a global experience, um, and that's something that's a that's really. Uh, it's 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 a path that many different cultures are on, um, and they're on various places of that path. What I'm looking at are is is this religion something that today um, is a is a break um, forward? You know, to, is is this something that is that is preventing us from egalitarianism, or is it? Or is it, you know, uh, allowing us to move further down that path? And I think the, the clear answer is that religious, religion presents uh, a break. Uh, religion represents, you know, the, it's, a, it's a block to, to getting closer to that, um, to that egalitarianism. And in Pakistan, um, there are so many examples of, of how this has um, uh, how this has come to be. Um, namely, I mean, I can point to, to one, which is that, you know, a couple of years ago, now, I, it's been so long, and my sense of time with COVID has just, <laughs> it's so warped. Um, but um, <laughs> but um, Pakistan only recently um, got to a point where it, uh, it began to consider domestic violence in, 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 a, in a marriage a crime. Um, that's a very, it's a very modern, it's a very modern uh, uh, taboo in Pakistan. And, and, and in fact, within the, the populace, it's not really much of a taboo. Um, and when it came time to, for uh, the, the lawmakers to consider um, it, uh, a, a statute that would, that would 
criminalize wife beating. Um, it was religious groups and organizations and, and you know, famous uh, imams that stepped up and said, no, this is un-Islamic. That in Islam, uh, a, a husband has the authority to discipline his wife. Um, and and that that authority is given to him in the Quran, not the Hadith, not you know, not something that is where we can sort of argue about its 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 relevance to uh, to to the faith, but but in in the Quran itself. And so you know, when I look at that, I think, well, uh, I see what the role of religion is here, and of course, not for every single person, um, but what is what is majority of the time its role in this debate. And that and, it, and that's, I think the, the clear answer is that its role is often to uh, limit women in their freedoms um, in this world, right? Um, uh, to, to, to restrict their rights. I mean, you, you know, uh, you mentioned um, inheritance. Um, that's a very interesting question in that in the modern world, women should be, uh, daughters should be allowed to have equal inheritance. And you're right that there are some, there are some uh, traditions still that are not Muslim, but also have uh, limited um, women's ability to, to inherit. But, but come on, like, I mean, in, 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 in the modern world today, we should be able to say that daughters should get equal, equal rights. Um, and it, Islam that may be that may be better than other traditions, you know, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, um, that's no longer relevant, you know. And I, um, I, I get frustrated, I guess, with this with this conversation that we're that which always tries to find the best parts of the faith, you know. And there are plenty of people that are doing that. There are you know a billion Muslims who are who are who are who are saying that no, this this faith is. Um, who are apologizing for this faith in various ways. Um, you know, I don't want to say that everything about the religion is 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 terrible. I don't think that's true. In fact, I think there are a lot of interesting things about the religion that I that I um, you know still find some beauty uh, you know in. But in some cases, um, it's very clear that this is uh, this is a tradition that um, we need to be able to say that. You know, you can be Muslim, uh, you can believe in Islam, um, but in such and such realms, it cannot be the basis upon which we make our laws. It can but not be the basis upon which we, you know, allow a certain kind of even social, uh, you know, norms to develop. Um, and uh, that conversation is is very difficult in Muslim majority of countries, especially where you know there there, it, there just isn't this norm of separating uh, the law with uh, with what they believe to be the religious truth. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. It's one of those circumstances that you don't want to ask why the plane is crashing to the ground. You just don't want to be on the plane, I guess. When we start to look across the planet and... I've done this myself. I, I wonder, are there any religions where women are not oppressed? 
because a lot of Buddhists make this claim, but go to Myanmar and look what Myanmar is doing to Muslims. I, you know, and I don't want to do oppression Olympics between religions, but I think it's fair to say that women have never gotten a good deal in religion. You know, um, mm -hmm. one surprise I had was when I was in Bali to learn that women could be Hindu priests there. I was like, yay. And these ceremonies are largely with flowers. So, of course, that was a huge yay, you know. Um, but the, the role of women has never been granted benevolence, not within religion and not without. So part of me wonders if just our role in the world has always been to sort of get the short end of the stick politically, somatically, in terms of who's doing what kinds of production of work within the house and outside. We see this. One of the first culture shocks I had in India, and I'd lived already around the planet, but I had never in my life seen women hoist hundreds of kilos of bricks on their head. Like that was something that was really shocking. And you'd see these men in these small sort of mini caterpillar uh, diggers, and they'd be telling the women where to go with these bricks on their head. And I thought, this is weird because were I in Guatemala or in Mexico or in Peru, these men would have been hauling the bricks. The women would not have had a caterpillar to sit in, but the men would have been doing the heavy labor. And I noticed in South Asia, how much heavy labor women were forced to do while men were commanding chai coming back and forth to them <laughs> you know and i'm speaking outside of the religion i'm just talking socially but within mm -hmm. the religion and within islam as well uh i did notice of course uh one of the prohibitions that we cannot do as soon as i had to you know prepare for the muslim world i was like okay um we, we can wear gold. Yay. I hate gold. So that wasn't a plus for me. Uh, having to cover our arms where men did not. Uh, the head covering, it does differ from country to country because I'm, I'm sure you've seen in, in India, Muslim women tend not to have to cover their arms and many do not cover their heads. There are other forms of covering that happen, but not necessarily in the same way as a hijab or any other type of veiling. And I, I wondered a lot about what the political correlation was to the religious. Because again, go to Rabat, and the minute you get near a part of town there called Agdal, which is very posh, all of a sudden you'll stop hearing so much Arabic and it'll start to be largely French, and people will pretend to not understand Arabic, I, I kid you not. So they pretend that they're French, they pretend they don't understand Arabic, and people will dress more Western. They will often, even in the taxis, you'll be in a taxi any given night, two women jump in because there's collective taxis. They're in full jellaba. But during the taxi ride that might take 20 minutes, they will have taken off their jellaba underneath which are mini skirts. They put on their makeup. It's like that scene out of Battle of Algiers. You know, it's really crazy where they are suddenly turning themselves into what they desire themselves to be for that evening. And their parents, of course, likely mm -hmm. do not know. So I saw these scenes many times living in the Muslim world. And is it that different than the Catholic girls in Mexico who told their families, I'm going to Stephanie's house or Stefania's house, and they're really going on a date with their boyfriend. So the prohibitions for women's freedom 
are they so different? Yes, they're tightly encoded in Islam, where in Catholicism, it would be argued, I'd say, that the codes were more set out within Catholic schools, within reform schools. But did girls have any more freedom under Catholicism than girls under Islam? And I wonder about this, how much of this is about holding women and girls as the repository of cultural wealth, cultural significance. Um, another example I'll give you, also, whenever I go to see my family in India, it's usually around what they call NRI season, non-resident Indian season. There's a plethora of weddings. And in the weddings, as I'm sure you know, because similar in Pakistan, you have many days of weddings. And in many of these lighter events, the pre-wedding events, you'll, you'll find men showing up in kurta, but they will not be wearing the formal trousers uh, that our fathers and grandfathers wore. They will often be wearing jeans. So they're wearing jeans with the kurta, and the women are showing up in full sari. And every time I notice this, I notice this for so many events where the men can show up even sometimes in sandals and jeans and a t-shirt, but the women have to be dressed. And it's made me think a lot the way in which women are and girls are expected to continue the cultural traditions while men are allowed to be lax. Even men are in my family, some of them have had meat. So there's this whole... Mm -hmm. They get that extra rope to play with. Women rarely do, depending on class. Going back to Agdel in Rabat, Morocco, the more money you have, the more, the more freedoms you have. So I do wonder to what degree some of the criticisms you have of the religion itself might also be class-based. Because are there so many people who are strict adherents to the religion who don't have extra rope to play with in terms of their freedom because of wealth? Right. So, well, I mean, the f I, and I, would, I wouldn't deny that so many other variables, including class, but maybe, maybe education, um, maybe uh, how, how, how close they are, how close they live, you know, geographically to, to differing, you know, perspectives and faiths. I mean, all these variables have an effect on how powerfully religion uh, restricts women, but, or Islam specifically restricts women. But it only pulls in one direction is my, you know, that's, that's my point. Isn't, it isn't that it's the case that it's the only pull. It isn't the case that it can never be overcome. Um, it, it, isn't, it isn't the case that other, other variables don't impact um, how, how, how powerfully uh, Islam does or doesn't restrict women, but that it, but that it does, <laughs> but that it, that it pulls in one direction and it doesn't pull. I mean, you, you showed some examples of, of, you know, historically, however, or, or in very specific cultural circumstances where in fact, Islam might be granting people more freedoms, but you know, that, those are extremely rare. Um, and what we've seen, even from the days of Muhammad to now, that in many cases, Islam, you know, pulls in one direction. And in fact, I would argue that almost always pulls in one direction. It's just what, what differs is the degree to which it pulls in that direction. Um, and, and, and when it comes to hijab, for example, right, I mean, you were, you, you, you were correct that, that in the Pakistani or, you know, South Asian um, uh, context, 
what modesty means is very different than what it might mean in Saudi Arabia, which is very different than what it might mean in Istanbul, which is very different than what it might mean even in the countryside of Turkey, right? Because Istanbul is very, it's a different world than, um, than, than if you were just to go uh, a couple miles uh, uh, to, to, to in, in, in any direction. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, even, even having said that, um, there is a fundamental logic behind the hijab. So whether or not what a woman is required to do is just cover her head, or if she's only required to cover, you know, her, her bosoms, or, or, you know, in, in a specific cultural context, it's, it's, it might be, um, you know, it might be interpreted differently, but the justification is the same, and it's a justification that I have a problem with, which is that the woman's uh, a woman's modesty has a relationship, um, you know, her 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 body and how she how she holds herself and how she whether she covers herself or doesn't or to what degree has a relationship with her character, with her goodness, with her value as as a human, you know, and it's 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 that fundamental logic. That I have a problem with, regardless of what the specifics of the hijab might be, it's it's that it is a requirement at all, and that it is a a a, a special requirement on uh, on women. I mean, men also have religious restrictions, um, but it is I think what you pointed out that it is they are enforced um, on women um, far more. Um, Maybe just far more effectively, right? Maybe maybe it is a case that women are just more likely to pay attention to these restrictions. But in the case of Islam, I'd say that they were they're also more strictly um, um, policed. Um, you know, I I I I grant you of um, you know the the etymology of the word arat, the Urdu word arat. Yes, if you could explain this for our listeners, however. Right. So um, the word for woman. In, in Urdu is is Aurat, A-U-R-A-T. Um, and it's it's very interesting because uh, it, I mean, by, by interesting, I mean tragic. Um, the word co comes uh, from the Arabic word Aura. Um, I'm not pronouncing that right. I'm not very good at, at, at Arabic pronunciation, but it's, it's the Arabic word for private part. You know, so you, when you cover your, you're, you're, you're told to cover your, you know, private parts, your aura. Um, uh, and it's interesting to me that in, in Urdu, um, that is, you know, where we get this word for, for woman as a whole, is just this private part, just this thing to be covered, you know, this thing to be ashamed of, um, fundamentally. Um, so I think that there are so many interesting, deep ways that, that, of course, a lot of different things, but I I think particularly religion um, affect the way we still think about um, the place of women um, of of their bodies um, in you know in relation to how they move about the world um, in relation to um, how they should be considered in terms of you know uh, moral righteousness and I think you know it, and you 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 bring up this point several times and I, I do agree I'm not you know I'm not denying that they're that there's something. It seems like you know misogyny is 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 something that that human beings will always have trouble with, um, and some of that might just be based on like based on 
who we are fundamentally or just something about the way that we organize our societies that we see this pattern again and again and we see it in so many different um, cultures and we've seen it throughout history um, and we, we don't see the reverse, right? We don't see um, matriarchies uh, popping up all, all over the place. Um, we don't see them with, with uh, you know, at, at best we get egalitarian societies, but, but humans have this problem with, uh, with women's rights. So, you know, I think about if it is the case that there is something inherent about women and, and men as biological creatures that, that makes us more likely to, to fall into this one kind of social organization. What can we do as, you know, as human beings who want to live in a more egalitarian society, who see the value in every individual of being, uh, you know, being allowed to be as free as possible to achieve their potential um, as much as possible. What, how can we, how can we set up our, uh, you know, our, 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 obviously our, our legal, um, you know, uh, uh, rules and laws, um, but also how can we set up, you know, social institutions that, that, that push back a little bit on this, on this human tendency. And I think in the West, we've gotten fairly good. Of course, there's so much, there's still, there's still, um, a lot of disparities. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that for some time, but it's, I don't think it's um, you know arguable by by serious people to say that that in the West women are far more free uh, to live the lives that that they that they want to live safe from uh, violence and especially of course safe straight they're safe from state sanction um, and so so we're getting there right like we're we've 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 managed to come this far so how can we go further um, and what has come what 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 has the West done right that can be replicated in other societies, given the fact that, that those other societies are indeed different in, in, in their you know, political or, or social orientations. Well, I agree with you with a caveat though, Sarah. This is something that I've had to battle myself. I would love to believe that in the West, we have all these freedoms that women don't have elsewhere. And there are many freedoms that certainly undeniably we have that women don't have elsewhere. There's one freedom, however, that we don't have that women have elsewhere. And this is it. If you followed what's happened over the past nine years, especially this past summer's Y spot incident, when women say that men are not women, we get shat upon in the West. In fact, there have been women who've lost grants for research, professors who've been threatened with being fired from universities. I had some of them on the show already. Uh, there have been women who've received police visits. I've interviewed several <laughs> just for saying that sex is immutable. Now, I'm not pretending that the Ayatollah of Iran was progressing gender ideology in terms of our best interests. What the transgender movement has done single-handedly, and they do this all the time, they point to the latest minister of parliament who happens to be a man who identifies as a woman in Pakistan saying, see, women's rights. And we're all, all these feminists on Facebook pages, you know, we're, we're in groups rolling our eyes back in our head. We know that the mullahs did not have it in their mind that men become women, hence women's rights are there. That's not the way women's rights are happening. And what's happening in the West is that women cannot say that men are not women. If you say that, you're going to go definitely into Facebook and Twitter jail. Many people have lost their accounts for this. 
and you will lose your jobs. There are many women who faced what, what's, what's happened in the UK with professors lo losing their jobs, having to have bodyguards. There've been so many cases of this. I've actually lost count. Women are not free and men too. I mean, Grant Linehan, who's a very well-known writer of BBC comedy is now untouchable because he's come to have our backs and say, this is madness. Men are not women. So we cannot actually say that men are not women. So despite the fact that I can walk down the street with a pretty good certainty that I'm not going to be sexually assaulted or beaten, at the same time, I can't go to San Francisco and say, you're a man without getting myself into a deep load of trouble. You know what I mean? I mean, there's, I have a lot of thoughts about what's going on with, with the gender ideology. Um, I, you know, I, I'll push back again on what, what, what I think, I think you're broadly correct in that this is the one way in which women's rights are, are being uh, restricted in the West that they are not being restricted in, in the East. Of course, broadly speaking, I would still you know, a hundred times <laughs> rather be a woman in the West than a woman in, in, in Iran, in Pakistan, in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, but it is, it is true that there's something going on with, uh, with gender ideology that is, um, that, that is making it so that we cannot speak about material reality. And when we cannot speak about material reality, we cannot talk about material injustices, right? We cannot talk about um, the ways in which that material reality reflects onto our social reality and then how, how, how we should deal with it as a society. Um, so there's something about what's going, this sort of derangement <laughs> involving uh, uh, this uh, gender ideology that I think has the potential to undo um, some of the gains of of feminists in in the West and and indeed um, already have um, in in some cases. I think we're right now we're at the beginning of of something, um, which is to say that this this movement is is taking off. It is uh, being enforced in 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 various institutions, um, but it's just the beginning of those that enforcement. So we're not going to see. The, the, the true effects of that for some time, but that is not to say that I, you know, we, can't, we can't already know what those effects will be. Um, which is to say like if you, if you allow um, biological males into women's spaces, private spaces, and you, and you also say uh, you know, at the same time that all that, you know, all that the biological male has to do to be allowed into those women's spaces is to say that they identify as a woman, and that is the that is the sole criteria. Um, women will necessarily be in, be put in danger, um, you know. And even if they're not in uh, terrible danger all the time, the fact that that there's this opening, that there is this, you know, I mean, how many? Uh, I I often get this this pushback on Twitter when I point this out that that. Um, women's spaces need to be protected from biological males. Um, a lot of people push back and say, usually men, of course, and then push back and say um, that, you know, how many trans women are, you know, uh, 
uh, are, are transitioning just to, to, to rape women. I mean, that's, they just don't believe that that's happening. And I, I would say, I, I agree. I don't think that that trans women are transitioning to, to rape women. I'm saying that this is a, a uh, hole that you're creating um, in the law, this loophole that can and will be abused by anyone because there is, you know, this, this, this ideology has no coherent explanation for what you know what transition even is uh why one must you know uh one must uh take on take take this on rather than just you know maybe go to therapy to <laughs> talk to like find other ways to deal with gender dysphoria why this has to be this this physical thing and fundamentally what it means to identify as a woman, you know, and I haven't, I haven't yet received an answer to that question. And I think it's very troubling that, you know, this, this is the core, this is the fundamental um, question that must have a coherent answer, you know, what is a woman and what is a man, you know, and, and, and if they can't answer this, then I, I am, you know, dubious, you know, I, I look, I look at this entire framework um, with a lot of, um, you know, I, I think you can just say hesitancy, but really fear to some degree, because I don't know where it's going to lead, because I don't know what it's saying. Right. Well, it's all very incoherent, I believe on purpose. It's very clear that when Switzerland and I believe Scotland had to stop amputating people's limbs because they had clients who flew there to say, I feel like this part of my arm should not be there and medical boards decided that was unethical. But somehow inculcating teens, young 20-somethings into a culture of amputating parts of their body, taking artificial hormones that are quite destructive to their bodies and their, that will limit their lives. This has not been squashed and it is concerning to me in the same way that, on, again, this is the anti-science nature of the era where we're getting advice on COVID from the same people that say that sex isn't real. Well, excuse me, or as I say, excuse me, don't blame people for not listening to your mask mandates and your vaccine advice because you think that we're Nemo. This is absurd. Going back now, Sarah, to my earlier question about how much of this is religious really, because you know, the, the criticisms of Islam we could make about a lot of religions, even ne not necessarily at the same time. But I went to school with uh, twins when I was uh, in elementary and middle school who were Pentecost. And they had to dress in a certain way, not wear makeup, and do things that made them look sort of like um, they stuck out, uh, the way they adhered to the religion. Uh, and someone might make the argument, oh, they were made to be uncomfortable in a city as Catholic as New Orleans. But to what degree are these socio-political constructs and to what degree are these co constructs made to ultimately and unfortunately protect girls? And I'm thinking back to when we first heard about the Taliban and the way that the burqa was implemented, it was because they were protecting, quote unquote, their women and girls from the atrocities of even worse groups than they, and so forth. Not defending it, of course. I'm just saying that 
I'm, I'm thinking back to what a friend of mine said, uh, Mediha, who's a friend of mine from Saudi Arabia, who said to me, we do to women what you do to women, but in the inverse way. We force women to cover her up and your culture forces women to reveal themselves. And I've thought about that over the years and I can't disagree with her. I think that it's two different sides of the same coin where women and girls, women's and girls' lives and bodies are rendered this kind of litmus test for virility, power, wealth, strength, and women pay the price. But no one is really asking why now. I agree that there are problems within not just Islam. I think religions pose women great harm. At the same time, when I was in one of these women's groups over the gender identity issue, one of the women came out and said, well, I have real problems with the way that Muslims are handled in our country. She was British. And she referred to the incidents of the grooming gangs in Rotherham and the way in which purposefully the police were made not to investigate initially the fact that the perpetrators of these rapes were largely and i believe uniquely south asian men and the reason for that is because there was pressure to not look racist on behalf of the police force and she said that is racist in itself now this woman was called racist in the group i was in it was really horrible what happened to her, I have to say, because I'm someone who's been very sensitive about Islamophobia in my own work as a scholar, but what she was saying was not Islamophobic, it was a truism. She was stating that the perpetrators of the Rothram grooming gangs were Muslim, and why wasn't that investigated? And instead of people looking at that accurately, she was called an Islamophobe. So what, is left is that we're left with a room where no one can speak unless they happen to be Muslim. And who's going to talk about that in a, in a void? Uh, part of the point of social media was to get people from various backgrounds talking about various issues. So the South Yorkshire police was, was guilty of sort of trying to be woke by not looking at the race. And now what's happened is that the force at the center of the Rothram grooming scandal from years back is now no longer re recording the ethnicity of child sexual abuse suspects. This is the latest news that came out a month ago. So where you have wokeism, this is how I contacted you over some of the posts uh, and social media um, statements you made over wokery is that wokeism has taken such a foothold in our society today that now the police not just joe schmo on the street but the police are being woke and by doing things like not recording data necessary data like knowing that a man is in the women's locker room and he's a man because he has a penis not because he says he's a woman these are causing serious social and cultural issues how is it that we can get out of this quagmire that largely the left has constructed? And I'm part of this left, by the way. How is it that we got in this mess, but worse, how do we get out? Because now we're living in an era where if you want to go to a spa, as these women in Los Angeles found out last summer, you can't. Because you go to the spa and you're going to find a man with a penis and then later find out he was a sexual predator. Right. And well, I mean, so... And, and, I, and again, I think that that some of these some of these problems that we're seeing with gender I, 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 I mean specifically there's 
there's the, the 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 inherent you know what is what is woman and what is a man that we have yet to ascertain but but the fact that even that we don't know the foundations of of this ideology we don't know the specifics of it we don't know you know why someone believes the way and we're not allowed to you know uh as a society have a say in whether we whether we whether we um believe this you know believe what 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 they believe about themselves um and whether we believe that it should have a say in how how we you know conduct ourselves as a society um that there it definitely feels like there is i feel coerced right i mean i don't feel like it's it's it, this is not a democratic thing where where the population is allowed to to have a vote in in whether or not biological males should be allowed in into female spaces i think that if you did that i think if you polled um you know the american public or 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 the british public or or you know any public really in any any country if you if you if you pulled the the vast majority of people um i think it's clear that they will say that no spaces should be sex segregated um but but it's interesting to me that 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 this is not ha this is not a discussion that we can have in the public space that there are restrictions being posed and i think that that's what's very troubling. And if, if we are to move forward, if we are to move out of this, it, we must be allowed to at least speak about this issue and have honest conversations with all the parties that are that are affected. And, in, and indeed, we are all affected by, by gender ideology. Like anyone who has a gender, anyone who has a sex, uh, has skin in the game, has a stake, uh, and it should be allowed to, to, uh, to, to, to talk about this issue and to to construct together, um, you know, as a society, what it means to be trans, what it means to have a different gender. Um, I think it's interesting that the only people who are allowed to know, uh, who are allowed to say what a woman is, is, uh, you know, uh, biological males who are <laughs> identifying as, as women. You know, they know what, what women is, but cis women um, uh, aren't allowed to have that same kind of, you know, seriousness um, and that same kind of um, certainty. The fact is, this is the most offensive term I've heard in my lifetime. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's actually saying that you and I identify with all these stereotypes that we've pushed back against. It's the very basis right. upon which the Taliban was putting women in burqas, was raping men into submission and so forth. Well, they claim it was the Northern Alliance, but there's evidence that they both did this. And the whole idea that there is even an internal intrinsic gender is something that feminists have been pushing back on for decades. Because what would have me identify as cis is what allows these men to say that I belong in a certain space. Now that's back to what we're talking about where Islam enters stage left to tell women what our true role is. All cis is is a role. So I have to wonder if the critiques that you have, and in your critiques of Islam are, are cogent, um, if they're not part and parcel of a larger problem of general mis misogyny that is not necessarily specific to any one religion or world order. It seems to me, to quote Sweeney Todd, the history of the world, my sweet, is who gets eaten and who gets to eat. Right. Well, I think this, and you mentioned, you know, that was an interesting point about about, you know, Muslim societies being where where, where women are are forced to cover, and then in Western societies where men, women are uh, forced to uncover. I mean, I mean, that's that's I think up up until this 
this specific debate um that that is that has that is kind of uh you know i mean it's definitely something that's like too cute um and i don't i wouldn't i wouldn't say that there's that it's fair to say that there's an equal amount of pressure on women to unclothe as uh, in the west as there is on in the east to to uh cover but I think the main issue, which you're, which you're, which you're getting to, is that of autonomy and that of consent. You know, so do I have the right to uncover? Or do I have the right to cover when I see it fit? Um, do I have the right to consent to to uh, specific, you know, restrictions? Um, do I have the do I have the right over my own body? Um, and what you're pointing out. At, with the we spot incident or and all these incidents where women are forced to be um you know in their private spaces or fo we're forced to be to expose ourselves um uh, in a way that we we uh, we, do, we are not comfortable in a way that we do not consent um and that is um you know i think that is going back to that to that reality that 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 here's just another way to take away women's autonomy to take away women's control over their own bodies, but it is, um, as you point out, um, an inverted, uh, you know, an, an inverted kind of misogyny, but it's, but it's, it's, it's certainly there. And I think what you were pointing out um, with the Rotherham, uh, with the, the, the rape gangs, I mean, I was very disturbed when I first heard about those and honestly very depressed um, because here is a case where so many young girls are uh, are being exploited, are being, um, you know, groomed, are being raped, are being sold, you know, and and we as a society are are stuttering rather than you know getting right to the point of what what what's going on and to solve this issue immediately. Um, and instead, it's getting um, held up by uh, this form of you know wokeness of political correctness. And I think it goes back to this idea that what matters isn't like in our society, what matters isn't the injustice itself or the harm itself. It, what matters more is who is perpetuating it. So there are people in our society, you know, groups of people who we have decided by we, I mean, really just this elite group of people who have decided that this is an acceptable villain. Um, and uh, when they are the, the, the perpetrators, um, we will take the injustice seriously. So if it is a, a white, you know, you know, quote unquote, cisgendered male, uh, and they are committing, you know, uh, uh, assault or abuse against women, and we will take that seriously. We will take that very seriously. Um, but when uh, that, you know, that perpetrator becomes, you know, any other race, um, when they start identifying as, you know, not male, then well, well, then at that point we we start, you know, we start hedging, um, and we start trying to change it. We start to change the conversation um, towards um, other things. We start trying to erase um, even statistics that that are that are irrelevant. And what you said with that they no longer, you know, there are movements to no longer record. Um, you know, ethnic backgrounds uh, of, of, of perpetrators. I've heard that there are similar movements um, when it comes to um, uh, gender or, or biological sex. Um, and, and, you know, and, and it, I, 
I know that in order to move forward, in order to be able to, to move past this, we have to, at the very least, have the ability to speak about it. Um, and this is where the restrictions and of, of, of uh, you know, technological, I mean, whether we like it or not, the public sphere is Twitter, the public sphere is Facebook. Um, that the, this is where we come together and we have and we, we, we have our conversations. And this is where we, we, we as a society, whether we like it or not, and what, whatever that means um, about, our, uh, uh, about our discourse, this is where it's happening. Um, and it worries me uh, that, that these, uh, th there's just a few group, a small group of people who have such a powerful, um, uh, you know, such a powerful um, effect on what we are allowed to talk about and what we are not allowed to talk about. Um, so that that makes me very nervous. It's a really crazy time because we're facing these kinds of oppressions against women and we're called all sorts of things. I'm sure you've seen it. We're front holers, cervix havers, users havers, menstruators, vile names to refer to us that make me think that the Taliban was one step ahead. And at the same point, we're not allowed to discuss ourselves without calling ourselves cis. What the hell? I don't identify with femininity. I don't identify with any of it. Now, I might be feminine, mm -hmm. but I don't have to identify with something to be it or to enact it or to perform it. Yet we're given mm -hmm. drag queen story hour with it's really insane because I'm coming from the gay side of the aisle and all of the stuff that I wanted for my gay rights. Great. So many things have come true, but I'm thinking the anvil has swung far the other way. What's going on? This is not what I've signed up for. Like this is sort of frightening. So we're, we're given this kind of rainbow collectivity of freedom when a lot of it seems to be backdooring abuses, abuses to women and children. Now we're finding out how many of the story time uh, drag queen artists have secret histories that are rather unsavory and we would not want our children around them. And I'm not a social conservative, by the way, but we have to we have to also understand that facts mean something. Right. So we're, we're there. And then we've got all this pressure on our freedom to speak. Now we're not supposed to speak, Sarah. If you speak, then you're an Islamophobe, you're a racist, you're a, a misandrist. Have you heard that come up a lot? You are a man-hater. And it's really, no matter, uh, you're, 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 you, you clarified throughout this podcast that, you know, you're, you're on the left, that, that, um, that, that you're progressive, that you've been supporting of so many of these uh, social movements for so long. Um, and you know that you, you might notice that I, I don't do that anymore. Um, I, right, I, right, used right, right. That. <laughs> I used to do that. I used to do that. But I, I don't do that. Um, and, and it's for two reasons. Um, one is that I don't believe it works. You know, I don't think you can say that for you, you can you can clear your throat all day. Um, and you can talk about how progressive you are, or progressive you have been, or, um, you know, like wh where it is that you're coming from. And it doesn't, it, it won't change a thing. Um, and if, if anything, it's going to be held against you um, because then you're, you know, it's, it's the dynamics of apostasy that then come into play, which is that <laughs> you start being punished more for being, you know, a leftist that step out of line, then you're just, you know, some centrist or some, you know, even mildly right-wing figure that, that, you know, you'll, you'll just get dismissed a little bit easier. You're actually going to get treated a little bit 
uh, with, with gent more gently <laughs> um, than if uh, you, you you say that you you're progressive. So th th that there's there's that practical element of it that it just doesn't work. It doesn't matter. Um, but there's and there's a second element which I you know haven't been that public about. But it's it's I I, I you know if I'm going to be honest and I I pride myself in in being honest about how I feel about certain things. Um, if if progressivism today not progressivism 10 years ago, not 20 years ago, but what it means today, um, if especially socially, is all these movements um, that, you know, that are that are putting identity and whether that be racial identity or sexual identity, or, you know, gender identity, like, a, a, a first and foremost, you know, if they if they, if these social movements are coming together in this in this form, then I I, I can't say that I support it because I don't think that this is good for women and I don't think this is good for men and I don't think that this is good for uh, you know a whole host of, of, of minorities that have been oppressed for so long. I don't think they're going to be any less oppressed um, if we start if we start deranging ourselves um, and if we start becoming censors um, you know and, and, and restricting these conversations. Um, so I don't you know, I, and I don't know where I've landed, right? I'm, I'm not saying, uh, I, I find it very um, annoying and frustrating when I see, you know, on Twitter or on social media, there's so many people that say, you know, I've left the left, you know, the left used to be blah, 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 but now it's it's not this way. And so I've, I've, I've walked away and it, it feels very performative to me. Um, so I can get, I, I get a little bit frustrated. And then there's also the fact that, you know, the, the, these social movements are just one part of of what progressivism is as a political movement. There's a lot of other things that are important. I mean, for me, climate change is extremely important. I don't really talk about it publicly because I don't really have anything to say other than the fact that I, you know, believe that this is something we need to do something about. Um, and, you know, so th there are a lot of other issues that matter um, and that have an effect on how I feel uh, uh, politically and how I orient myself politically. But when it comes to the, the, the articulation of of uh, you know social dynamics that that the left has now come to adopt. Um, you know, I have to say I'm not on board, um, and I'm not on board because I think this is harmful. You know, I think this is this is going to hurt a lot of people. Um, and I, 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 you know, I cannot support, you know, especially it's going to hurt women, right? I've, I've always cared about women's rights. I still care about women's rights, and it matters to me whether the 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 uh, the specific obsessions and 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 focuses on 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 the political left are helpful to women, and you know, I have to conclude that they're not. Um, and that is not to say that you know, conservatives are wonderful, like, but, 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 and of course they're not, and of course they have their own problems and blah, 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 all that throat clearing. I'm just not going to get into it because, again, it doesn't matter.